Chapter 19 of One of the Twenty-Eighth. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Harris. One of the Twenty-Eighth by G. A. Henty. Chapter 19. The Rout. While Pack's brigade secured the prisoners taken by the cavalry and sent them to the rear, the cavalry themselves continued their charge. In vain Ponsonby ordered the trumpeters to sound the halt. Carried away by the excitement of their success, an excitement in which the horses shared, the three regiments galloped on. The royals on the right fell upon two French regiments advancing in column, broke them, and cut them up terribly. The Inniskillens also fell on two French line regiments, shattered them with their charge, and took great numbers of prisoners, whole companies running up the hill and surrendering to the infantry in order to escape from the terrible horsemen. The cavalry were now terribly scattered. The three regiments of Ponsonby's brigade were far down in the valley, as were the second life guards and first dragoon guards. The first life guards and the blues were still engaged with the quidissiers, opposed to them, for these, although driven back, were fighting doggedly. The greys, who should have been in reserve, galloped ahead and joined Ponsonby's squadron, and the two brigades of heavy cavalry were far away from all support. When they reached the bottom of the hill a tremendous fire was poured from a compact corps of infantry and some pieces of cannon on the right into the royals, Inniskillens, and second lifeguards, and a fresh column of cuirassiers advanced against them. They wheeled about and fell back in great confusion and with heavy loss, their horses being completely blown with their long gallop across the heavy ground. These regiments had fared, however, better than the greys, royals, and Inniskillens on the left for they, having encountered no infantry fire, had charged up the hill until level with the French guns, when, turning sharp to the left, they swept along the line, cutting up the artillerymen, until suddenly they were charged by a brigade of lancers, while a large body of infantry threatened their line of retreat. Fortunately, at this moment, the light cavalry came up to their assistance. Riding right through the infantry column, the light cavalry fell upon the French lancers and rolled them over with the fury of their charge and then charged another regiment of lancers and checked their advance. Light and heavy horse were now mixed up together, and a fresh body of French cavalry, coming up, drove them down the hill with great loss, they being saved indeed from total destruction by the eleventh hussars, who, coming up last, had kept their formation. Covered by these, the remnants of the cavalry regained their own crest on the hill, and reformed under cover of the infantry. General Ponsonby was killed, and his brother, the Colonel of the Twelfth, severely wounded, and left on the field. While this desperate fight had been raging on the centre and left, fresh columns had advanced from Jerome's and Foy's divisions against Hugomont, and had again, after obstinate fighting, captured the orchard and surrounded the chateau, but were once more repulsed by a fresh battalion of guards who moved down the slope to the assistance of their hard-pressed comrades. Then for a while the fighting slacked, but the artillery duel raged as fiercely as ever. The gunners on both sides had now got the exact range, and the carnage was terrible. The French shells again sent Hugomont on fire, and all the badly wounded who had been carried inside perished in the flames. At the end of an hour fresh columns of attack moved against the chateau, while at the same moment forty squadrons of cavalry advanced across the valley toward the English position. The English batteries played upon them with round-shot, and as they came near with grape and canister. But the horsemen rode on, and at a steady trot arrived within forty yards of the English squares, when with a shout they galloped forward, and in a moment the whole of the advanced batteries of the Allies were in their possession. 
for Wellington's orders had been that the artillerymen should stand to their guns till the last moment, and then run for shelter behind the squares. The French cavalry paused for a moment in astonishment at the sight that met their eyes. They had believed that the British were broken and disorganized, but no sooner had they passed over the slope than they saw the British and German squares bristling with bayonets and standing calm and immovable. The artillery on both sides had ceased their fire, and a dead silence had succeeded the terrible din that had raged but a moment before. Then with a shout the cavalry again charged, but in no case did they dash against the hedges of bayonets, from which a storm of fire was now pouring. Breaking into squadrons, they rode through the intervals between the squares and completely enveloped them. But Lord Uxbridge gathered the remains of the British cavalry together, charged them, and drove them back through the squares and down the hill. Receiving reinforcements, the French again advanced, again enveloped the squares, and were again hurled back. While this was going on, the battle was still raging round Hugomont and La Haye Sainte, against which a portion of Riel's division had advanced. But the Germans resisted as obstinately as did the guards, and as the French cavalry retired for the second time, the infantry fell back, and for a time the slope of the English position was again clear of the enemy. For a time the battle languished, and then Napoleon brought up thirty-seven fresh squadrons of cavalry, and these, with the remains of those who had before charged, rode up the slope. But although they swept on and passed the British squares, they could not succeed in shaking them. A body of horse, however, sweeping down toward the Dutch and Belgians at the end of the line, these at once marched off the field without firing a musket, and the brigade of cavalry with them galloped away at full speed. The position was a singular one and had Napoleon ordered his infantry to advance in the rear of the cavalry, the issue of the day might have been changed. In appearance the French were masters of the position. Their masses of cavalry hid the British squares from sight. The British cavalry were too weak to charge, and most of the guns were in the possession of the French. But the latter's infantry were far away, and after sustaining the fire of the squares for a long time the cavalry began to draw off. Lord Uxbridge now endeavoured to persuade the Cumberland Hanoverian Hussars who had not so far been engaged, to charge. But instead of obeying orders, they turned and rode off and never drew bridle until they reached Brussels, where they reported that the British army had been destroyed. Adams' brigade were now brought up from the reserve and drove back the French infantry and cavalry who had come up the top of the crest beyond Hugomont. On the other side, Ney sent a column against La Haye The Germans made a gallant stand, but they were cut off from all assistance, outnumbered, and were altogether without ammunition and although they defended themselves with their bayonets to the end, they were slain almost to a man, and La Haye Santa was captured at last. But beyond this the French could not advance, and though column after column moved forward to the attack on the crest, they were each and all beaten back. It was now nearly seven o'clock in the evening, and the Prussians were engaged at Saint-Lambert, Napoleon having detached Lobo's corps to arrest their progress. Their march had been a terrible one. They had to traverse country roads softened by the rain, the men were up to their ankles in mud, guns and carriages stuck fast, and it was not until after tremendous efforts that the leading squadron of their cavalry passed through the wood of Wavre and came in view of the battle that was raging. It was then past four o'clock, and another hour passed before any considerable number of infantry arrived. It was at this point Napoleon sent Lobau against them. He was able for a time to resist their advance, but as fresh troops came up from the rear, the Prussians began to win their way forward, and Napoleon was obliged to send two more divisions of the young guard to check them. He now saw that all was lost, unless he could, before the whole of the Prussian army arrived, 
break down the resistance of the British. He therefore prepared for a final effort. Ney was to collect all his infantry, and advancing past La Haye Sainte, to fall upon the centre of the British line. The guard, who had hitherto been held in reserve, was to pass Hugomont and attack the left centre. The cavalry were to follow in support. A cannonade even more heavy and terrible than before, for the guns of the reserve had been brought up, opened upon the British, and the squares were now melting away fast. But no reinforcements could be sent to them, for the whole of the British troops were now in action, and their allies had, for the most part, fled the battlefield. Every gun was brought to the front, the remains of the cavalry gathered together as a reserve, and some of the Prussians now approaching the left, the cavalry there were brought to the centre to aid in the defence of the threatened point. Just as these arrangements were completed, the enemy advanced in tremendous force from the enclosure of La Santa, and with their fire so completely mastered that of the remnants of the infantry that their light guns were brought up to within a hundred yards of the British line, and opened with grape upon the squares. Two Hanoverian battalions were almost annihilated, and the brigade of the German legion almost ceased to exist. A Brunswick cavalry regiment that had hitherto fought gallantly lost heart, and would have fled had not the British cavalry behind them prevented them from doing so. In the meantime the Imperial Guard, in two heavy columns, led by Ney himself, were advancing, the guards being followed by every available man of the infantry and cavalry. One of these columns skirted the enclosure of the Hougamont, the other moved against the centre. They pressed forward until they reached the top of the slope, and a hundred cannon were brought up and unlimbered while the artillery on the opposite slope rained round shot and shell upon the British squares and artillery. The English guns tried in vain to answer them. They were wholly overmatched. Gun after gun was dismounted, horses and men destroyed, but as soon as the leading column of the guards reached the point when their own guns had to cease fire, the English artillery opened again, and terrible was the havoc they made in the dense columns. Still the guards pressed on, until they reached the top of the crest, and then the British guards leaped to their feet and poured in a tremendous volley at close quarters, fell on the flank of the column, broke it, and hurled it down the hill. The guards were recalled, and prepared to oppose the second column, but their aid was not needed. The fifty-second threw themselves upon its flank, the seventy-first and ninety-fifth swept its head with their volleys, and as the column broke and retired, the Duke of Wellington gave the orders the men had been longing for since the fight began, the squares broke into lines, and the British, cheering wildly, descended the crest. The French retreat became a rout. Cavalry and infantry fell upon them, the artillery plied them with their fire, the Prussians poured down upon their flank. By eight o'clock the splendid army of Napoleon was a mass of disorganized fugitives. For ten hours the battle had raged. To the men in the squares it seemed a lifetime. "'When shall we get at them? When shall we get at them?' was their constant cry as the round shot swept their ranks although from their position behind the crest they could see nothing of their enemies. Nothing is harder than to suffer in inactivity, and the efforts of their officers were principally directed to appeasing the impatience of their men. "'Our turn will come presently, lads.' "'Yes, but who will be alive when it does come?' a query which was very hard to answer, as hour by hour the ranks melted away. Although they kept a cheerful countenance and spoke hopefully to the men, it seemed to the officers themselves that the prospect was well-nigh hopeless. Picton's brigade mustered scarcely half their strength when the battle began. They were to have fought in the second line this day, but the defection of their allies in front of them had placed them in the front, and upon them and upon the defenders of Hugomont the brunt of the battle had fallen. And as the squares grew smaller and smaller, it seemed even to the officers that the end must come before long. 
"'This cannot last,' Captain O'Connor said to Ralph when the day was but half over. "'They'll never beat us, but by the time they get here there will be nobody left to beat. I don't think we're more than two hundred strong now, and every minute the force is diminishing. I don't wonder the men are impatient. We bargained for fighting, but I never reckoned on standing for hours to be shot at, without even a chance to reply.' It was just after this that the French cavalry burst upon the squares, but this cheered rather than depressed the spirits of the men. For a time they were free from the artillery fire, and now had a chance of active work. Thus, as the fire flashed from the faces of the square, the men laughed and joked, and it was with regret that they saw the cuirassiers fall back before the charge of Lord Uxbridge's cavalry, for they knew that the moment this screen was removed the French artillery would open up again. Ralph's chief sensation was that of wonder that he was still alive. So overwhelming was the din, so incessant the rain of shot, it seemed to him a marvel how anyone could remain alive within its range. Almost mechanically he repeated the orders, Close up! Close up! As the square dwindled and dwindled, he longed as impatiently as the men for the advance, and would gladly have charged against impossible odds, rather than remain immovable under fire. When the order at length came, he did not hear it. Just after the storm of fire that heralded the advance of the guards broke out, a round shot struck him high up on the left arm. He was conscious of a dull, numbing sensation, and after that he knew no more of what was taking place. It was pitch dark before he became conscious. Fires were burning at various points along the ridge, for when the victory was complete the British retired to the position they had held so long, and the Prussian cavalry took up the pursuit. Fires had been lighted with broken gun carriages and shattered artillery wagons, and parties with torches were collecting the wounded. Ralph found that his head was being supported, and that a hand was pouring spirits and water down his throat. The hand was a shaky one, and its owner was crying loudly. As he opened his eyes, the man broke into a torrent of thankful exclamations. "'The Lord be praised, Mr. Conway. Sure, I thought you were dead and killed entirely.' "'Is that you, Dennis?' "'Sure, and it's no one else, Your Honor. Is the battle over?' "'It is that. The French are miles away, and the Prussians are at their heels.' Then "'What has happened to me, Dennis?' "'Well, your honour's hurt a bit in the arm, but it'll be all right come presently.' It was well for Ralph that he had been struck before the order came for the advance, for as he fell, the one surviving surgeon of the regiment had at once attended to him, had fixed a tourniquet on the stump of his arm, tied the arteries, and roughly bandaged it. Had he not been instantly seen to, he would have bled to death in a few minutes. Dennis now called to one of the parties who were moving about with stretchers. Ralph was lifted on to it and carried to the village of Waterloo, where he was placed in an ambulance wagon, which, as soon as it was full, started for Brussels. The fighting was now over, and Dennis asked leave to accompany his master. The rout of the enemy had been so thorough and complete that it was not thought probable any serious resistance could be offered to the advance of the Allied armies to Paris, and he therefore obtained leave without difficulty to remain with his master. Ralph suffered from exhaustion rather than pain on the journey to Brussels, and several times became almost unconscious. At four o'clock in the morning the ambulance stopped at a handsome house that its owner had placed at the disposal of the authorities for the use of wounded officers. He was carried upstairs and placed in bed in a room on the second story. Dennis at once proceeded to install himself there as well. He brought down a mattress from a room above, laid it in the corner, throwing his greatcoat over it. Then, as soon as he thought the shops were open, he hurried out and bought a kettle and a saucepan, two cups and tumblers, a small basin, and several other articles. "'There, Your Honor," he said as he returned, "'now we've got everything we need, and I can make soups and drinks for Your Honor, and boil myself a tater without having to go hunting all over the house for the things to do it with.' 
A few minutes later two surgeons entered the room and examined Ralph's arm. They agreed at once that it was necessary to amputate it three inches higher up. Ralph winced when he heard the news. "'It won't hurt you very much,' one of the surgeons said. "'The nerves are all numbed with the shock they've had, but it's absolutely necessary in order that a neat stump be made of it. The bone is all projecting now, and even if the wound healed over, which I don't think it would, you'd have trouble with it all of your life.' "'Well, of course, if it must be done, it must,' Ralph said. "'There isn't much left of it now.' "'There's not enough to be of much use,' the surgeon agreed, but even a shorter stump that you can fit appliances on to will be a great deal more handy than one with which nothing can be done. The operation was performed at once, and although Ralph had to press his lips hard together to prevent himself from crying out, he did find it less painful than he had expected. "'There, you will do now,' the surgeon said. "'Here, my man, take that basin and a tumbler and run downstairs to the kitchen. They'll give you some broth there, and some weak spirits and water. Bring them up at once.' Ralph took a spoonful or two of the broth and a sip of the spirits, and then lay back and presently dozed off to sleep. Dennis had followed the surgeons out of the room. "'And what instructions is there, Your Honor? Your master is just to be kept quiet. If he's thirsty, give him some lemonade, and you can obtain that or anything else you require below.' "'And about myself, sir. I wouldn't speak about it, but I've had nothing to eat since yesterday morning, and I don't like leaving Mr. Conway alone even to buy myself a mouthful.' You will not have regular rations, but all officers, servants, and orderlies will obtain food below. Meals will be served out at eight in the morning, one and six. You take down your pannikin and can either eat your food there or bring it up here as you choose. Breakfast will not be ready for two hours yet, but there are several others in the same plight as yourself, and you will find plenty to eat below. Dennis took his place by his master's bedside until he saw that he was sound asleep. Then, taking the pannikin from the top of the knapsack, he stole noiselessly out, and in two or three minutes he returned with the pannikin full of soup, a small loaf, and a ration of wine. "'But jabers,' he said to himself as he sat down to eat them, "'these are good quarters entirely. I should wish for nothing better if it wasn't for the master lying there. Lashings to eat and drink in a room fit for a king. Nothing to do but to wait upon his honour. I suppose after to-day I shall be able to stale out for a few minutes sometimes for a dry me pipe. It would never do to be smoking in here.' The master wouldn't mind it, but I expect them doctors would be for sending me back to my regiment if they were to come in and smell it. After he'd finished his meal, Dennis took his seat by Ralph's bedside, but he was thoroughly exhausted. He had not slept a wink since the night before the battle, and after the fatigue of the day had been tramping all night by the side of the ambulance, which was constantly stopped by the numerous vehicles that had broken down or had been overturned by the way. After waking up suddenly with a jerk once or twice, he muttered to himself, I'll just take five minutes on the bed, then I shall be all right again, and threw himself down on his mattress with the great coat for a pillow, and slept for several hours. So heavy was his slumber that he was not even roused when the surgeons came round at ten o'clock to see how Ralph was. He had just woke. "'And how do you feel, Mr. Conway?' Well, "'I feel quite comfortable,' Ralph said, but shall be glad of a drink. Where is my man?' "'He is asleep there in the corner,' the surgeon said. "'I'll give you a drink of lemonade.' The poor fellow is worn out, no doubt. Oh, yes, please don't wake him. I'm glad he is asleep, for he had all that terrible day yesterday and was on his feet all night. I shan't want anything but this lemonade, and I have no doubt I shall go straight off to sleep again as soon as you have gone. It was not until one o'clock that Dennis woke. He at once got up and went to Ralph's side. The latter opened his eyes. How do you feel now, Your Honor? Oh, I'm getting on very well, Dennis. My arm hardly hurts me at all at present. I expect it will ache worse presently. 
I've been having a few minutes' sleep, Your Honor, and now if you don't want me for a minute I'll run down and see about breakfast. I should think it must be nearly ready. <laughs> see about dinner, you mean, Dennis. Why, it's just one o'clock. One o'clock? Why, Your Honor must be dreaming. I don't think so, Dennis. There is my watch on the table. Why, Your Honor does not mean to say, Dennis said in great astonishment, that I've been sleeping for five hours. Why, the watch must have gone wrong. Oh, the watch is right enough, Dennis. I heard it strike twelve by the church clocks before I dozed off last time. Why, the surgeons came in at ten o'clock and gave me some lemonade. And mean to know nothing about it, Dennis Mulligan, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Slaping like a pig in a stile, with your master laying wounded there beside you, and no one to look after him. Why, I just laid down for a five-minute nap, Your Honor, seeing that you'd gone off into a beautiful sleep, and never dreamed of more than that. That was the best thing you could do, Dennis. You had been twenty-four hours on your feet, and you would have been fit for nothing if you hadn't had a good rest. Now go downstairs and get your dinner, and when you come back again, you can bring me up a basin of broth and a piece of bread. I begin to feel hungry, and that's a capital sign, I believe. When Ralph had finished his broth, he said to Dennis, I shan't want anything now for some time, Dennis. You can put a glass of lemonade within reach of my hand, and then I shall do very well for an hour or two. I'm quite sure he must be dying for a pipe, so go out and take a turn. It'll freshen you up, and you can bring me back what news you can gather, as to the losses yesterday, and whether the army started in pursuit of the French. It was some time before Dennis would consent to leave the room, but at last, seeing that Ralph really wished it, he went out for an hour, and returned full of the rumors he'd picked up of the terrible losses of the British, and the utter rout of the French army. The next morning Ralph had a great surprise, for just as he had finished his breakfast there was a tap at the door, and a lady entered. Ralph could hardly believe his eyes as his mother ran forward to the bed, but the pressure of her arms and her kisses soon showed him that it was in fact a reality. "'Why, mother, darling,' he exclaimed, "'how on earth did you get here?' "'I came across on his smack to Ostend, Ralph, and then came on by carriage. I got here last night and learned at the quartermaster-general's office that you were wounded, and were somewhere in Brussels, at least they believed you were here somewhere, but they could not say where.' They let me have a copy of the list of the houses that had been allotted for the use of wounded officers. It was too late to begin the search last night, but I've been three hours going round this morning. I saw the surgeon downstairs, and, and, he, and he told me, and her lips quivered and her eyes filled with tears, that I had lost my left arm, mother. Well, that's nothing to fret about when thousands have been killed. One can do very well without a left arm, and I think on the whole that I've been wonderfully lucky. Dennis, but Dennis was not in the room, having, as soon as he had discovered who Ralph's visitor was, gone out to leave them alone. And, and have you made this journey all by yourself, mother? No, my dear. Mr. Tallboys was good enough to come over to take care of me, by the way. Mr. Tallboys, mother, how did he know that you were coming? Well, I told him, Ralph. But that's a long story, and you shall hear it another day. The doctor said you had better not do too much talking now. Mr. Tallboys will stay here a day or two and then go on home. I intend to make a room somewhere close by and install myself here as your head nurse. Oh, I shan't want much nursing, mother, but I shall be delighted to have you with me. I have a capital servant, the man I told you about in my letters. He's a most amusing fellow and very much attached to me. Do you know he got leave directly the battle was over and was all night walking by the side of the ambulance wagon? He is a capital fellow. By the way, mother, I, I suppose the will has not turned up yet? You said in your last letter you had great hopes of its being found. It has been found, Ralph, and it is all just as we supposed. But how it was found, or anything about it, you mustn't ask at present. It's a long story, and I must insist now that you lie quiet and go to sleep. 
Well, I will try, mother. Will you just look outside the door and see if Dennis is there? Dennis, this is my mother, he said as the soldier came in. She's come over to help nurse me, and as she will be principally with me in the daytime, you will be at liberty to go out whenever you like. Sure, and I'm glad the lady has come, Mr. Conway. Though I would have done the best I could for you. Still, a man's but a poor, poor crater in a sick room. Can I get you anything, ma'am? Well, I have had nothing this morning, Dennis, and if you could get me a cup of tea and some bread and butter, if it's not against the rules, I should be very glad. Sure, and I'll do that, ma'am, with the greatest pleasure in life, Dennis said, and presently returned bringing up a tray with tea, bread and butter, and a plate of cold meat. Is there anything else, ma'am? Well, Dennis, I should be very much obliged if you will take a note from me to a gentleman named Tallboys, whom you'll find at the Hotel de l'Europe. Give it to him yourself, if you can. He'll be glad to hear from you about my son, how he is going on, and so on. For the next few days Ralph's arm was exceedingly painful, attended by a certain amount of fever. At the end of that time he began to improve, and his wound made steady progress toward recovery. After staying for four days in Brussels, Mr. Tallboys had returned home. Mrs. Conway and Dennis divided the nursing between them, sitting up on alternate nights. A fortnight after Mrs. Conway's arrival, Ralph said, "'Now, mother, I shall be up to-morrow, and can therefore be considered as fairly convalescent. So there can be no reason now why you should not tell me the story about the finding of the will. You told me in one of your letters before Christmas that Mr. Tallboys had failed altogether, so how did it come to be found?' Mrs. Conway thereupon told the story. When she came to the point where she had gone as a servant to the hall, Ralph interrupted her with a loud protest. "'I don't like that, mother. I don't like the idea of your having gone as a servant, whatever the stake was. If I had been at home and had known it, I certainly would have not let you go. Not if there had been ten fortunes to be gained by it. The idea of your having to go and live as a servant and work for people like that is horrid.' There was nothing very unpleasant about it, Ralph. I had plenty to do and to think about, and the time passed a great deal more rapidly than it would have done if I had been staying at home all by myself. It would have been very lonely and dull then, and I can assure you that I considered it no hardship at all being at the hall. But you must not interrupt me in my story. If you do, I shall tell you nothing more about it until you get home to England. This threat effectually sealed Ralph's lips, and beyond occasional exclamations he said nothing until the story was ended. "'Well, it's all very wonderful, mother,' he said, "'and I should never have thought for a moment that you were so brave, "'and could have put things together like that, "'and could have carried out such a scheme. "'But I'm awfully glad you've succeeded, "'because you had set your mind on it, "'and the money will, I hope, make you quite comfortable. "'How much was it, after all, mother? "'You never did tell me that.' "'Well, it's half of Mr. Penfold's estates, "'and of the money he had invested, "'which is a very large sum, Ralph, "'although I do not know how much. "'Half the estate?' Why, it will make me quite a rich man. I never dreamed it was anything like that. I thought most likely it was enough to continue the allowance that he said he should make me. Why, mother, it's tremendous. And what becomes of the other half? Oh, that is left to Mabel Withers, Ralph. You two divide everything that he left. Well, that certainly is rather hard upon his sisters, Ralph said, and I don't blame them for being against it, though, of course, it was not right to keep the will hidden. Mr. Penfold did not leave anything to them, because they are both very well provided for, their father left them a handsome sum at his death, and as they have been living at the hall ever since, and can have spent nothing, they must be very amply provided for. Their brother, therefore, naturally considered he was perfectly at liberty to leave his property as he chose. I do not think the Miss Penfolds have the slightest reason to grumble, after living as they have done for the last twenty years at their brother's expense. 
"'Of course that does make a difference,' Ralph agreed. "'It certainly didn't seem nice that Mabel and I, who were no relation by blood to Mr. Penfold, should come into the property that his sisters expected would be theirs. But, of course, now you explain it, it's different.' "'I do not think in any case, Ralph, Mr. Penfold would have left his fortune to his sisters. He was a man very adverse to exerting his own will, and I am sure that he submitted to, rather than liked, his sisters' residence at the hall. I know that he considered, and justly, that they had once committed a cruel wrong upon him, and had in a way spoiled his life. I question whether he really ever forgave them.' "'I see, mother,' Ralph said. "'Well, now, about myself. I should think there can be no occasion for me to continue in the army, unless I like.' Well, I hope you don't like, Ralph. In the first place, I want to have you with me, and in the second, you'll be a large landowner, and property has its duties. Well, there's no necessity to decide about that at present. The doctor said yesterday I should certainly get three months' sick leave before I rejoined. By all we hear, the fighting is at an end, and there is no fear whatever that Napoleon will have it in his power to cause trouble in the future. They will take care of that, whatever they do with him. If there's going to be peace everywhere, I do not know that I should care very much about staying in the army. But, as I said, we need not decide at present. Ten days later Ralph was so recovered that he was able to return home with his mother. As soon as she informed him of her arrival at Dover, Mr. Tallboys wrote to tell her that he had had an interview in London with the Miss Penfold's lawyer, who informed him that he had instructions from his clients to examine the will, and, if satisfied of its genuineness, to offer no opposition whatever to its being proved. Mr. Tallboys had thereupon shown him the will, and had no difficulty in convincing him that it was the document he himself had drawn up, and Mr. Penfold had signed in his presence. The lawyer has placed all the deeds and documents relating to Mr. Penfold's property in my hands, and, as I was of course before well aware, my late client died worth a very considerable property, in addition to his large estates in this country. For the last twenty years his income has exceeded his expenditure by an average of three thousand a year and as the surpluses have been judiciously invested, and as the prices of all funds and stocks now stand vastly higher than they did during the course of the long war, their total value now amounts to something over a hundred and thirty thousand pounds. The property in this country was valued, at the time Mr. Penfold drew up his will, at eighty thousand pounds. These estates he left to your son, and the sum of eighty thousand pounds in various investments to Miss Withers, and directed that the residue, whatever it might be at his death, should be equally divided between them. Your son's share, therefore, will amount to about twenty-five thousand pounds. I may say that the outlying farms, which were settled by deed as a security for the four hundred pounds annually paid to you, are not included in the above valuation, but are ordered to revert to the main estate upon your decease. The formalities will be completed in the course of a short time. I may say that from the totals to be divided must be deducted legacy duties, which, as your son and Miss Withers are strangers by blood to the testator, will be heavy. Mr. Tallboys added that he heard the younger Miss Penfold was now recovering from her serious illness, but it was not probable that she would ever be again herself. He had received, he said, a letter that morning from their solicitor, saying that as soon as Miss Eleanor Penfold could be moved, which it was hoped would be in the course of another week, the ladies would vacate possession of the hall. A fortnight later Mrs. Conway and Ralph left Dover for London, leaving orders with an agent to sell the furniture of their house. All Ralph's old friends on the shore had been made happy with handsome presents. After a short stay in London they went down, and Ralph took possession of the hall. He soon found there was abundance of occupation for his time on the estate, and that this would be increased when, as would doubtless be the case, he was placed on the commission of peace for the county, 
as Herbert Penfold had been before him. As soon as Ralph had completely recovered his health and strength, he told his mother that she must spare him for a week, as he had promised that he would on the first opportunity go over to Dunkirk to see his friend Jacques. He crossed by the packet from Dover to Calais, and thence by coach to Dunkirk. Here he inquired among the fishermen for Jacques, and found that he had returned before Napoleon broke out from Elba, and that he was owner of a fishing smack which was now at sea. The next day Jacques returned, and his delighted meeting Ralph was unbounded. He took him home to his neat cottage, where his pretty young wife was already installed. Ralph remained two days with him, and obtained a promise from him that he would once a year sail over to Weymouth and pay him a visit. "'I am a rich man, Jacques, now. At present I see you want nothing, but should any accident befall your fishing-boat, or you have need for money for any other cause, write to me, and the money for a new boat or for any other purpose shall be yours at once. I could afford to give you a hundred boats without hurting myself, so do not hesitate for a moment in letting me know if I can help you. It will be a real pleasure for me to do so.' Jacques kept his promise, and never missed coming over once a year to pay Ralph a visit, and as his five sons, one after another, grew up to be able to manage boats for themselves, they were each presented one by Ralph. Jacques himself prospered as a fisherman, and never required the assistance Ralph would have been glad to give him. Neither Ralph nor Mabel Withers was informed of the expression of Mr. Penfold's hopes in his will that they would some day be married the two mothers agreeing cordially that nothing was so likely to defeat the carrying out of Mr. Penfold's wishes as for the young people to have any suspicions of them. They were still but boy and girl, and were now perfectly happy in their unrestrained intercourse, for not a day passed that the two families did not see something of each other, but had they had a suspicion of the truth it would have rendered them shy and awkward with each other, and have thrown them much more widely apart. "'We both hope that it will come about, Mrs. Conway,' Mrs. Withers said one day and I certainly think there is every prospect of it. Let us leave well enough alone, and allow it to come about naturally and without interference. As soon as Ralph left the army, he purchased Dennis Mulligan's discharge, and the Irishman was installed as butler and Ralph's special servant at the hall, and remained in his service to the end of his life. In due time the natural change in the relations between the two young people came about, and their youthful friendship ripened into love. When Ralph was twenty-three and Mabel had just come of age, she changed her name and took up her place at the hall, Mrs. Conway gladly handing over the reins of government to her. She herself lived with her children, for she was almost as fond of Mabel as of Ralph, to the end of a long life, and deep was the regret among her children and grandchildren when she was at last laid to rest in Bilston Church, close to the resting-place of Herbert Penfold. End of chapter 19, The Rout, and end of One of the Twenty-Eighth by G. A. Henty. Recording by Mike Harris.